Everybody and welcome to Project Shadow, episode number six ten. Today we're talking about fantasy and a special little topic on fantasy. See, over the weekend I was talking to my niece about how much she likes fantasy, and she made a comment to me that really made me think. She said, "It's amazing to me how much I love fantasy, but how sometimes it just goes over my head because I don't see all the little details." And that really made me think about how there is a certain topic, a certain threshold for what makes fantasy work and what makes fantasy exist in its own realm and in its own way. Fantasy, unlike other genres, has a specific and particular language that needs to be understood for it to make sense. It is both a visual language and a metaphorical language. And when I think about some of my favorite fantasies, from Harry Potter to Avatar The Last Airbender to War the World Mine to Steven Universe, they all have this commonality that the worlds that they inhabit and the worlds that they flesh out need to be understood on their own terms. Some of that has to do with the nature of world building, and some of that is baked into the setting and the worlds themselves. It's one of the things that makes fantasy a much more powerful genre to me than any of the others, because it allows itself to inhabit a world and inhabit a space that is uniquely its own. That's one of the ways that you know that you're actually watching a good fantasy show or reading a very good fantasy book. If it feels too much like somebody else's work, those limitations begin to wear on you and make you feel like what you're watching is less than fictions that it is referencing. So when you look at something like Avatar the Last Airbender and compare it to something like How to Train Your Dragon Race to the Edge, and I think that those are valuable things to compare to each other because they're both ostensibly children's media. It might actually be better to compare Avatar to something like Troll Hunter because they actually have a very similar formula to them where you have a special person who has been blessed by destiny to inhabit a role that will require him to save the world and those that love. But the language and the manner in which both of these stories evolve and change over time is so distinct because the language and the nature of the settings demands more from a fantasy story than it does from almost any other genre. So you couldn't place the Avatar in the world of Troll Hunter, and you couldn't put the Troll Hunter in the world of the Avatar. And that's not because there aren't trolls in the world of Avatar The Last Airbender. You could easily try to make the explanation that trolls are spirits from the spirit world, and that's where they come from. The problem with trying to fit these two worlds together actually comes into the basics of how they operate. See, in the world of Avatar The Last Airbender, airbending is something that you were born with. Airbending, waterbending, and earthbending are the same. You can learn other techniques. In fact, one of the most amazing things about 
the original plastic airbender series is watching Toph learn how to metal bend and create an entirely new form of bending. We know that things like that have happened before because we get to see things like the sand benders and the swamp benders, for lack of better terms, who are using bending in new ways. And we also add to that the bloodbenders. But these are powers that are innate to them. They're powers that they are born with. And as such, they are talents that they have to come to terms with. So Avatar, in so many ways, is discussing how we deal with those things that are innately part of us and expressing themselves in the world. On a more similar lines, you could see the stories in Steven Universe in the same way, where Steven was born with Rose's gem and has to learn how to operate in that world, which is not something that he asked for. Troll Hunter, on the other hand, is a sort of destiny type story where our hero gets an amulet that allows him now to access the powers of the Troll Hunter. The amulet has chosen him, much like the power rings of the Green Lantern Corps, or Excalibur chose King Arthur. And I make that reference because Merlin, of course, is very important to the world of Trollhunter. So while Avatar and its related me media is about come to terms with what's going on on the inside of you. And so we see Korra dealing with her own emotions from her PTSD to her feelings of inadequacy as an Avatar to her feelings for how the world should actually operate throughout the course of Legend of Korra and dealing with the things on the inside of her in a world like Trollhunter you're looking at external things. So we're looking at the relationship between the characters and their prince, the characters in their school, the characters in police, the characters in the world, because an external power has gifted them this destiny. And so since the power is outside of them, all of their challenges are outside of them. This is where Harry Potter becomes a very interesting story, because it actually is a mashup of these two kinds of world building. Magic is something that Harry was born with. Harry was born a wizard. He was also born with the blessing that his mother Lily put upon him when Voldemort killed her. Now, that thing is actually something external to him. And so the struggles that we see Harry going through in the seven books are both internal and external, where he's learning to deal with the powers that are inside of him. Part of that showing his own maturing as a human, as he's learning how to deal with his anger that he is experiencing now for the first time, and these kind of pubescent rages that he has throughout the book, as well as the feelings he starts having for Cho Chang and eventually Jenny Weasley. These, these powers are in contrast to the external some people would say are MacGuffins, but when you actually look at the structure of the Harry Potter universe, they're actually the forces outside of him that are compelling him to move on. They actually have psychological resonance in him, unlike most MacGuffins, which are simply there to put forward the plot. So, for example, in Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, or Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, depending on which country you first encountered that book and or movie, the Philosopher's Stone is less of a MacGuffin in that it's the thing that drives the plot, but it is actually the point of the story. Harry must learn how to alchemically mix together and merge his strengths with Hermione's and Ron's to achieve the goals that they have set out for themselves. Now, this is true whether it be with their squabbles with Malfoy and the Slytherins, their desire to win the house, or their need to find the Philosopher's Stone. It is an externalization of their internal wishes, whims, and desires, as well as their own fears. This becomes more clear in something like Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, where Harry, for the first time, is starting to learn about some of the things that he didn't know. He knew that 
Hagrid, for example, was not allowed to do magic, strictly speaking, but he didn't know exactly why. Throughout the book, the secrets that Harry starts encountering are not only related to Slytherin's secret chamber within the story, but the secrets that are surrounding him, which will become a constant theme throughout his life, which manifests very strongly in events like Dobby deciding whether or not he should be allowed to go to school. External forces are always working on Harry and grading up against his internal desires, and so he's always trying to find a way for his own personal magical abilities and talents to come out, which is why he feels most at home on the Quidditch pitch, because that's a place where he is actually in charge. He, while being chosen to play Quidditch, innately has the ability to play the game. He loves riding on broomsticks. Actually, see this quite beautifully in Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, where he finds a picture and a letter written by his mother talking about his first broomstick and gets to see an image of himself as a young child being chased by his father's legs as he zooms around the family's house on a broomstick. This is something innate within him and it's something that he loves and it's something that he allowed to have out. This brings about great sense of tragedy we have in Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows where he loses not only Hedwig, which is his oldest friend, he loses his firebolt pretty early in the story and never gets another broom. We see this symbol of his own innate magical powers and talents and the things that he loves to do be rubbed away from him very early in the story. And then every other action throughout the story is him coping with the choices that others have made and him deciding whether or not to respond to them and if so, how? He is after either the Deathly Hallows or the Horcruxes, and that is the choice. He has to choose how to interact with the world. It has matured. It's no longer about what he wants, it's about what's the best thing for him to do. We see that built into the world building and into the setting very well in these stories. And so his struggles are clearly manifest to the world around him. King's biggest issues are also internal. He never wanted to be the Avatar. He never asked to have any of this thrust upon him. But he learns about himself throughout the series is even if he wasn't the Avatar, he would probably still be fighting this fight because he can't stand to see injustice or lack of compassion reign in the world. He has to act. He has to, out of his own innate sense of identity interact with the world in a way that brings about more justice and compassion and makes people live in a better way. This, of course, and spoilers I should have said for the Harry Potter books, but I assumed everybody had already read them or seen the movies. Spoilers for Avatar here, if you're not caught up on Avatar The Last Airbender, which you should be, um, definitely go check it out. It's one of the best animated shows ever made, and I would say probably one of the best TV shows ever made. But in the end, when he's fighting Fire Lord, the answer is actually to remove from the Fire Lord one of his innate powers. By taking away the ability for the Fire Lord to actually be a firebender, he's able to cure the problem. He's able to fix the problem in a way that he sees as non-violent, but is, when you actually think about it, one of the most violent acts he could have taken in the story. And it shakes him when he does it. This is, of course, a natural place to end the story because the psychological ramifications of what he had done would have been something that would have haunted him and really darkened the series and taken away the lightheartedness that the series had and made us fall in love with it. Violence, after all, is not simply attacking somebody. It's not hitting somebody. It's not restraining somebody. It's not even re really doing anything that causes physical harm. Violence is the removal or limitation of choice from a person. Once you are taking away someone's choices, you are committing an act of violence. 
This is why physical violence is physical violence. You have taken away their ability not to feel pain. You may have taken away other abilities as well through the act of physical violence, but the basic violence of the act is a where somebody who is not feeling pain and now you have first pain upon them violent act at the end of avatar the last bender is that he takes away the choice from the fire lord the fire lord is no longer or the phoenix lord as he decides to come up by the end of the series no longer has the choice whether or not he is going to be a firebender and how he is going to use the firebending in the world he no longer has the ability to bend fire and I'm not trying to say that I made the wrong decision. Aang absolutely made the right decision in doing this. In this one action, he was able to rob the Fire Nation of its greatest power, <laughs> weapon, whatever you want to call it. But he was also able to do so in a way that would hopefully allow for the redemption of the, of the villain. The Fire Lord now has the ability to see how he treated those who were not benders or who were not specific firebenders. Because now he is subject to them and their whims way that he once subjected others. The actual victory in the war comes from Zuko and his fight with his sister Azula, because in Zuko's victory over Azula, he is able to stop the succession that would have continued the war. He is now the leader of the Fire Nation. He is now the new Fire Lord, and as such, he is able to stop war, bring back the troops, and bring peace to the world. The person who brings that peace is Zuko, who is the secondary hero in the story, and it's his redemption through this action. And it's these actions in concert, which is why they are the twin heroes of this story, and one of the things that is so powerful. And everything that they do, every action that they take, is built out of their own innate internal desires. This is why, for the vast majority of the series, for Zuko to cave true to himself, he has to put on a mask and become the Blue Spirit. Only with a mask on can he actually be who he is, because he's recognizable as the Son of the Fire Lord, and as Son of the Fire Lord, there are expectations put upon him. He wants to gain his honor, and he thinks honor is how other people look at him, or perceive him, rather than sum total of his own actions. In his conflict with his sister, he sees honor is not merely having other people bow to you or respect you because of who and what you are or how they perceive you. True honor is something that you earn for yourself and something that you gauge yourself by. That changes him, and that is one of the things that helps him to realize that his uncle Iroh is actually the most honorable person that he knows. Iroh is true to himself no matter what, and that integrity is the root honor. That allows him to defeat Azula in the end and become the honorable Fire Lord that can end the war. He would not have learned this if he had not had the influence of his uncle Iroh, nor if he didn't, or if he didn't have the interactions with the Avatar that he did, which caused him to question how the Fire Nation was behaving. Remember, he was scarred by his father in an Agni Kai while he was a child and expelled from the Fire Nation because he spoke truth to power. His father's generals were killing their own troops willy-nilly as a sign of strength and a sign of force, knowing that their troops were going to die, sending them in a way, and it solved nothing. It served no purpose. Their deaths were simply cannon fodder. Young Zuko spoke up for these troops, and as such dishonored his father, who didn't understand the concept of honor itself, and ended up being kicked out of this broken system. Good to see world building builds into the world the issues that the heroes and the villains are struggling with on the inside. This creates a unique language for 
every fantasy story. It brings them to life in a way that causes people that get into them to be, well, really into them. For Steven Universe, the idea of the gems and being an alien force that are based in light and their abilities to fuse and their abilities to draw weapons and fight and do all of these things that they do, all of them represent the characters themselves. Ruby and Sapphire, Ruby is a hothead, Ruby is a warrior, Ruby is the strong strong one that gives Garnet strength. Sapphire has the ability to see the future. She is the one that is always looking forward, and her tactical mind, plus Ruby's strategic outlook, allows the two of them to lead crystal gems in a way that they normally wouldn't. Their magical powers are linked to their identity and linked into makes them such wonderful characters. We see this with everyone from Pearl or Pearl to Amethyst and even with Steven. Steven's powers are rooted out of love and compassion. These are things that he kind of got from his mother but notice that they are very different when he uses them because Rose didn't really understand what love was. She fell in love with the earth, and that's why she led the gem revolt, because she didn't think that it was something that should be willy-nilly destroyed for the benefit of her own people. But she didn't really understand what love was, I believe, until she met Greg, Mr. Universe, who we absolutely love. And if you don't love him, uh, please let him drive his van into your heart. I love Greg so much. But even more than that, I think she truly understood what love was when she decided to give up her own life so Stephen could be born. That act of self-sacrifice is what taught her the truest meaning of love. And this is what we see inside Stephen himself. This is the inheritance that he from his mother. His mother did some bad things. She did some dastardly things. She wasn't the saint that he wanted her to be. And that's what we've been learning over the story. And I'm not going to give any spoilers because if you haven't been watching Stephen Universe, you really should. But Everything that he's been de dealing with, from the corrupted gems to his relationship with Connie, his relationship with the other gems, is all built out of his own central self. When we see him sing a song like Giant Woman, it is his absolute sincerity to see what this would be, because he is innately curious. His curiosity is one of his greatest superpowers, even though it is something that is not as actually inhabited in his gem. It's not a power that actually comes out of his gem is one of the powers that helps him more than anything else, as well as his compassion. We see from the flashbacks with Rose Quartz that she did not really have an understanding of compassion. Her first real view of true love was when she saw Garnet. And I know this is a little bit of a spoiler, but when we actually see Rose's reaction to Garnet for the first time, she sees something that is beyond her understanding, that is beyond her ability to grasp. She sees two people be able to come together to make something bigger than the sum of their parts. That's not how gems traditionally used fusion. Fusion was used to, so that two gems of the same sort could enhance their own abilities. In fact, it was used quite selfishly so that they could more of the thing that they already were. By bringing together these differences and letting them augment each other in a way that really showed how love could empower someone, Rose saw something that she didn't understand, and I believe that her relationship with Garnet was as much one of curiosity and wanting to see that and yearning for that in herself, something that I don't feel that she started actually experiencing until Greg. And the greatest irony of that is that she and Greg could not fuse. 
because Greg was not a chum. And so her inability to connect with other people was actually overcome by someone who could not connect with her in the intimate way that her people connect with others. Insight often comes from random places. Insight often comes from the places that we least expect it to come from. And when you look at the world building in these settings, it really does explain why some people have a hard time getting into fantasy, because fantasy, unlike other settings, where if you're doing a sci-fi story, then everything's going to be rigidly based on reality in some way, shape, or form, and then extended out into some kind of future vision so that the world is somehow more fantastical and allowing you to tell your story, whether that be from Ready Player One all the way out to something like 2001 A Space Odyssey, which extends out what we already know about the world into what we could know about it. Those worlds are limited and locked to what can physically happen in our world. Fantasy is not. From J.R.R. Tolkien's Silmarillion, which talks about how the Valar originally created the world through song, all the way through to the four over the Simmer. Silmarils and the War of Wrath, all the way down to the Fall of Numenor, to the War of the Rings that we find in the preamble, if you will, to the Lord of the Rings series itself. That world could be perfectly constructed to exhibit thoughts and feelings that Tolkien wanted built into stories. This, for me, is actually one of the great limitations of A Song of Ice and Fire, and I often get in trouble for not being a fan of the books and a moderate fan of the TV show. Because to me, the books have locked themselves too much onto our reality. They're trying to do to fantasy what science fiction does, except for in reverse. They're trying to look at the past through non-nostalgic eyes so that we can see that the past that we often idolize in our fiction, be it a medievalism or a knights in shining armor, it's not exactly the happy-go-lucky world that it's often presented at as in fantasy fiction. And while there is a place for that, and I don't think that grimdark is necessarily a bad way to go, it does rob the world of ice and fire from a lot of the meaning that it could have if it had embraced the fantasy genre much more wholeheartedly. You see, fantasy, as I've been saying, allows the world to be shaped in a way that allows you to tell the story more faithfully to what it wants to be. We can see this with the way that one of the well, one of the major ways the setting of the Song of Ice and Fire books diverges from the real world, despite the existence of Begins and Magic, as limited as it may be, is in the summer-winter cycle. And this is really only there to show what, to me, like an understanding of Nietzsche's Apollonian Dionysian curve that moves back and forth between times of free sp spirited excess all the way back to a time of tyrannical control and back and forth and back and forth we go. And while we can sit and have a long talk about Nietzsche and whether or not a Nietzschean reading is the most valid one for A Song of Ice and Fire, because I don't know exactly how familiar George R. R. Martin is with any of those concepts, though they are something that has pervaded our society for a long time, that's really the only place that we get to see the world being shaped by the inner struggle of the character. Neris's world is very much our world, with the exception that she has dragons. She is subject to rape and villainy and all of the terrible things that everyone else is. Her relationships with her dragons is magical, but not magical in the way that they actually give us insight into her. She is mother of dragons. That is all. We don't get the deeper insights that fantasy would normally lead us to, even though some people are desperately trying to find them there. And I'm not saying that this is something that is wrong in the book. This is not what George R. R. Martin wanted to do with them, so that is something that he did not do with them. That's Fine. There's room in this big world for all kinds of fiction and all kinds of fantasy. The 
point that I'm trying to make is this is why, to me, a fan of the fantasy genre, those books fall apart to me. They feel a lot more like trying to read something from medieval history, or a retelling of medieval history, and much less a story of epic fantasy. And that's not because, well, they don't have happy endings and all the... No, 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 I don't care about all of that. I'm fans of a lot, lot of fiction that doesn't have happy endings. That's not the point. The point is, you can do grimdark in fantasy, and you can do it quite well. I would argue that... Those books technically aren't fantasy to its fullest extent. They, like sword and sorcery, which is only interested in employing fantasy elements for the sake of having sword and sorcery be there for epic fights between people. That's what magic is in A Song of Ice and Fire, is a send-up of the sword and sorcery genre and kind of the epic fantasy genre to a certain degree, but doesn't embrace nature of fantasy in a way that could make for the storytelling much more interesting. Unlike something like the, uh, what are they called, the Kingslayer books by Brandon Sanderson? Or, um, did I get that wrong? No, the Kingslayer books, that's, uh, okay, Kingkiller, that's Patrick Rothfuss's series, who also embraces magic in a very way, real way, but still embraces a, a grimdark kind of scenario, as well as the Brandon Sanderson, the Br yeah. The Brandon Sanderson series, which I think is doing a similar thing, but different. They are embracing the nature of fantasy to express something in the world that is part of the characters and is part of the conflict in itself. I'm not saying that one of these approaches is superior to any of the others. What I'm saying, trying to say is that the very nature of the genre makes it opaque to some people who don't understand or are not easily able to neither of that's what i'm wanting to say the hardest part of explaining fantasy to somebody who is not a fan of the genre is getting them to understand the conventions that i'm talking about here at like science fiction where i can basically say look this is a space opera there are going to be people going from planet to planet they're going to be fighting with exotic weapons and they're probably going to save a princess or two along the way now you know everything you need to know about space opera that buck rogers or flash gordon or star wars you have the basics that you need there yeah, you can go deeper into each world and even the lensman where you can see a lot of the influences from these things from these things and where they came from fantasy is often reduced in discussing it to okay so there are magical beasts of some sort throughout the world be they dragons or unicorns or something else and there's magic which is the ability to do things that you normally wouldn't be able to do within a scientific context but that doesn't actually explain what fantasy is, because every fantasy book, and especially every fantasy series, when executed well, is almost a genre in and of itself. Yes, there are tropes and conventions that do go from book to book. I mean, we wouldn't have most modern fantasy genre without Tolkien, and yes, Sword of Shannara is a homage, shall we say, to Tolkien's books in The Lord of the Rings, but the Shannara books themselves take on their own character over time and become their own thing. Much like American Gods or any of the other books by Neil Gaiman, each one being virtually a genre in and of itself, because while it may be playing on the ideas of something that already exists, such as Coraline with children's novel, it does diverge quite quickly into something that is very native to itself. This is something that you don't find in cozy mysteries or romance stories or anything that would be considered literary fiction. Fantasy is so consumed with world building, unlike any other genre, that worlds that it builds need to be understood on their own terms in such a way that 
understanding the world relates very strongly and correlates very strongly to whether or not you will love the book or the setting itself, series itself. That's something that you can't say about a lot of science fiction or a lot of the, uh, shall we say, sword and sorcery that is out there. So when watching something like... I think it was called Legion or something like that. It was a series, it was a show that was put on Netflix not that long ago, very short. It wasn't even a series, it was a movie where basically it was a Frankenstein type monster story. And I've now told you everything that you need to know about it. It starred the dude from Avatar. Can't think of the name of it right now, and it's not important enough to actually look up. So we'll talk about Altered Carbon. Altered Carbon is kind of a twist on everything that is cyberpunk. It takes all of the things that you would expect from a cyberpunk story. There are intelligent AIs that do their own thing. There's some work of humanity that's been taken over by technology technology, i.e. people no longer have a need to die because we back up their memories onto some kind of weird disc thingy that's made out of this altered carbon that they don't actually spend a lot of time delving into, and I hope they do in six seasons of the show. And the world itself is pretty much ours with all of the bad things about us dialed up to 11. I really don't have to explain to you how altered curtain works. You don't have to understand that in a way to understand the series. And I say that because series itself feels no obligation whatsoever to explain it to you. You find out that at one point that it was discovered on some alien planet and these aliens developed it and we figured out a use for it and huzzah! There you go. That's all you need to know because, well, you're kind of familiar with our world and how it works and their world works basically the same way with the exception that as long as this little disc in the base of your skull isn't damaged, you can be brought back to life if you so choose and haven't taken a religious exemption to keep you from coming back. None of those topics are actually explored in the series, at least to date, and only as of the recording of this, only the first season is out. You don't really have to know much about the world. You just have to know if you care about the characters. And for me, Poe was enough to get me to continue watching the show. I eventually fell in love with the main character, and I can't wait for season two. But there isn't a lot of the world that you have to really know about, because it is essentially our world. Now, you contrast that with something like Sense8 that had a much harder time developing an audience, though I think it's a much superior show. Everything about that show and its setting requires understanding, which is why I think the first couple episodes are rather slow, and that's because they're easing you into the world. They have to explain to you, and they do this by having the other characters enter the world of the Sensates as we, the audience, are. Through their eyes, we discover so much more about the world that they are living in and is inhabiting. It is a world that is so affected by their moods, their anger, their need to defend each other, their love. The series has some of the most amazing love scenes in them because we see how their love for one another and their lust for others flows back and forth between them in a way that you wouldn't see in normal conventional fiction. It is a show about us and our effects on each other, how our connections with each other do change us and them. It's a powerful show, but it is a show that has developed its own mythology, and it's a show that must be approached on its own terms. I cannot compare it to any other show because it is a successful fantasy series that it has developed a world unique unto itself that must be addressed on its own terms. Two different Netflix shows, two very different scenarios. And that, I think, is the reason why some people find fantasy opaque. Maybe right, I may be wrong. I would love to know what you think. Please let me know. You can either comment on this episode, you can download the Anchor app yourself and leave me a voice message, which I would love, and we'll actually do a reply episode if you guys do that. You can also leave your questions here. You can also hit me up on Twitter and Facebook, and yeah, you can find links to all of that at projectshadow.com.
Thanks to the people at Anchor, I am now able to let you know, if you look into the show notes for this episode on whatever podcatcher you're listening to me on, you will see links where you can donate to keep the series going. They're 99 cents, $4.99, and $9.99, I believe, are the options that they present. I didn't have a choice over what those options are. Those are chosen by default, and those are the ones that they use. If you like this series and you would like to hear more, Please think about donating. Anything that you give to Project Shadow, help me do more of these episodes and maybe even flesh things out so that I can have more guests on the show or talk about topics that you guys are more interested in. If you do have any topic ideas, you can always hit me up on social media and let me know. I would love to hear them. Thank you so much for all of your support over the years. I hope you are enjoying the new Project Shadow. This is episode two in the new series, or episode 610 overall. I am going to be doing seasons of the show because there are times when the show will naturally fall away. If I can bank some episodes, for example, in November, it will be episodes in November, but I will be participating in National Novel Writing Month, and I will not have time to do much else. So now, season one is planned to go through the beginning of November, we'll see what happens after that. I may do some bonus episodes throughout November just to kind of let you guys know what's going on and keep the conversation going. A full episodes like this will probably stop in November and pick up again in December. I should let you know. Anywho, thank you for listening and as always, have the fun. Bye.